the Ten Commandments are told to us in two places in the book of Exodus when it happens chronologically and then the book of Deuteronomy when Moses is about to pass and he's giving his last will and testament to the Jewish people and amongst his uh, speech and the various messages that he conveys and the rebuke that he gives them, he repeats the Ten Commandments to them a second time. And it is really interesting that the exact text of the Ten Commandments changes from the first time to the second time that it is recounted by Moses slightly. And one of those changes, for example, is that it says Zachar in one place and it says Shamar in second place. Zachar means to remember the Shabbos. And Shamar means to observe, to obey, to abide by the laws of the Shabbos. And in one place it says it one way, and second place it says it a second way. But the last of the Ten Commandments, which equals mitzvah number 38 in the 613 of the Torah, is the mitzvah of not to covet. And in the book of Exodus, it says not to covet, and the book of Deuteronomy says not to desire all the things that belong to your fellow, not his wife, not his house, not his ox, not his donkey, not his garment, nothing that belongs to your fellow. So there's two distinct prohibitions that relate to the character trait of envy. When you're envious, when you're desirous of your neighbor's stuff, be it his material possessions, his spouse, his home, his car in modern day, you're desirous of that specific item that belongs to your friend, or if you take any action to try to extract that item from your friend, then you are violating one of these two prohibitions, prohibition number 38 in the Torah and prohibition number 416 in the Torah. Now, if someone actually tries to actualize that, so we have the first prohibition, which is not to desire it, even if you do nothing about it. The second prohibition is not to covet it, which is taking steps to try to extract it. And of course, if someone were to steal it, that would be a third prohibition, which obviously is related, but that's not to steal. Now, the idea of not to covet, not to desire, not to be envious of what your fellow has it's important to stress that this is not to be understood as the Torah opposing upward mobility. Of course, we are ambitious and we are, generally speaking, uh, relatively successful people. And that does not come from you know, resting on your laurels and being complacent. Rather, we, we are ambitious and, and we have aspirations and we're aspirational people. And we desire to better our lives in, in all areas, in, of course, the physical material sense and certainly the spiritual, the intellectual realms too. When it says over here not to desire, not to covet what your fellow has, it doesn't mean to just sit around and not try to advance your life. It means don't specifically desire what your neighbor has. So that's the first point to mention before we dig into this mitzvah. In addition... There is a distinction between spiritual things and physical slash material things. Because there is a prohibition, two prohibitions, like we said, to desire to covet the physical material possessions of your fellow. However, 
What if your neighbor, your fellow, has spiritual successes? That, quite to the contrary, we're told that we are supposed to desire, we're supposed to covet it, we're supposed to be envious of the spiritual accomplishments of our fellow man. In fact, the verse tells us, Kenat sofrim tarbe chokhmah. The envy of scribes will increase wisdom. If you see your neighbor and he's a successful scribe, meaning that he's advancing scholastically on the spiritual sense, he's, he's studying Torah, he's accomplishing, finishing books of Talmud, well, and that arouses envy, that's a good kind of envy that is to be encouraged because that's going to prompt you to study as well to try to advance your own scholarship. It's only specifically addressing uh, the physical or the material or the relationships that your fellow has, not to desire that. Now, what's the reason behind this idea? Because I think it's a very expansive idea, the idea of envy. It's a very uh, basic, almost root emotion that we always or we default to experiencing. You see kids and kids are invariably envious you know, why does he have more? Why do the, why do they get 12 jelly beans and I got only 11? I've heard that from my kids. So that's, that's a very, it's a very basic almost instinct. And we're told that it's a prohibition. And this is, it's very rare for the Torah to assign a prohibition against a character trait, A. And B, it's, it's really like an emotion. The Torah is governing the emotions that we have, which is a very unusual, it's not unprecedented, but it is unusual, it's worthy of, of, of trying to ponder what the message behind it is. So the Sefer HaChinuch, which is the book that guides us through the 613 mitzvos, he tells us, he says, listen, there is a prohibition of stealing. And when the Torah tells us that we have to stop a step earlier, we can't be desirous, we can't be envious, we can't be jealous, we can't be covetous of what our fellow has, that's a prophylactic against stealing. If someone assures that they're not going to desire what their fellow has, that will prevent them from actually taking a step to try to acquire it, and therefore you'll be spared from what could potentially result from your desires, from your coveting what your fellow has. This is interesting because we are familiar with the concept of rabbinic Fences, rabbinic ordinances, rabbinic edicts to prevent a Torah transgression. So, for example, the classic example of this is the Torah tells us that we can't do work on Shabbos. And we know that there's 39 different categories of work that's forbidden on Shabbos. One of them is to not write. And come along to the rabbis and they say, not only shouldn't you write on Shabbat, you shouldn't handle a pen on Shabbat because handling a pen is likely to lead you to actually utilizing that pen for its intended usage, which of course is writing, and therefore stop yourself a step earlier. So that's a rabbinic concept that we see all over the Torah. In fact, the Torah itself tells us that the Sanhedrin, that the rabbinic leadership should take steps to prevent the Torah from being violated to make rabbinic edicts. And every once in a while, we see a Torah-idic edict, meaning the Torah itself giving us some fences, so to speak. And here, according to the Sefer Chinuch, the prohibition against desiring and coveting what our fellow has 
is a prophylactic against stealing. It's almost like a fence around the other prohibition of not stealing. Now, there's a very powerful essay by the Ibn Ezra, which is one of the medieval commentaries in the Torah, where he, I think, opens up a whole new vista of understanding of this idea of not desiring and not coveting what our fellow has. And he begins by asking, you know, the obvious question. He tells us that there's many people that wonder about this mitzvah. Is it really reasonable that the Torah governs what we desire? After all, how is it possible that a person should not covet in his heart what is beautiful, what is desirable in his eyes? It's almost an instinct that we have. It's a knee-jerk reaction. You see something, you want it. Kids have it all the time. How is it reasonable for the Torah to govern this? How indeed is this a fulfillable commandment? And he tells us a parable of a simpleton, a rural person, a poor farmer, but one of sound mind. If you see someone who is a, a peasant, but he has a sound mind, and he gets a glimpse of a princess, of the king's daughter. And she's very beautiful, and she's very rich, and she's very powerful. But there is a tremendous gulf socially separating these two people. She, of course, is on the highest social strata, and he is all the way at the bottom on the lowest. And if he's of sound mind, he realizes that there's no way that he will ever get this woman. She's totally out of his league, and it's not feasible for him to have her. Similarly, normal, healthy, soundly rational people don't desire to sprout wings out of their forearm and to soar like an eagle. Now, would it be cool to be able to fly like an eagle? That sounds fantastic. That sounds wonderful. You could just skip over all the traffic. You could get a nice literal bird's eye view of everything that's happening. Amazing. Everyone would love that, but why don't we desire it? Says the Ibn Ezra that people only desire the things that they view to be obtainable. People only lust after the things that they assume that they could actually acquire. When someone realizes that things are entirely unobtainable, they're beyond the limitations of the fixed and rigid rules of the world, they cease to desire it. Lust, the Ibn Ezra tells us, is not blind. It's limited to what a person views as accessible. And therefore, this mitzvah, not to desire, not to covet what our fellow has, in effect, what the mitzvah is telling us is that we have to realize that everything that our fellow has was apportioned to him by God. And therefore, if God decided that he has this woman 
or this ox or this donkey or this home or this garment. In my head, that should become so unobtainable, it's more unobtainable than what the laws of biology dictate are not accessible. Just as biology tells me, we're growing wings out of your forearms, it's just not going to happen. Don't desire it. Just as biology dictates a nice Jewish boy like yourself, maybe over six feet tall, but you're still not going to dunk a basketball. Certainly not in an 11-foot basket. The standard height of a rim is 10 feet. You're not going to do it. It's just just not possible. Don't even desire it. When the Almighty God, creator, overseer, sustainer of everything, decides this is not yours, this is your neighbor's, that should change how you see the world, that should alter what you think is accessible to you, and therefore you should naturally not desire it, just like the peasant naturally does not desire the woman that's out of his lead, and just as rational, healthy people don't desire to sprout wings out of their forearms and to soar and to fly like a bird. There's a very deep idea over here that the Ten Commandments, they begin, I'm the Lord your God, took you out of the land of Egypt. They begin with telling us about the concept of faith. And they end, according to this Ibn Ezra, also with the concept of faith. The difference being that I'm the Lord your God, it's an intellectual, abstract concept that can entirely remain in our minds, remain theoretical, remain intellectual. At the very end of the Ten Commandments, that is a reflection of this concept being applied, being absorbed, being brought down to the realm of the practical, of the tangible, of the palpable. When this concept actually reverberates within you, what does it look like? How does someone who sees the world through faithful lenses, how do they behave? Thou shall not covet, thou shall not desire what your fellow has. Well, how can I not desire it? The answer is, if you really, truly have faith, if that really guides how you see the world, then when God decides something is not yours, it becomes totally inaccessible. It becomes so unreasonable to desire only people that are not operating in a logical, rational, reasonable way would even desire it. And therefore, there's a continuity here. There's a continuum between the beginning and the end of the Ten Commandments that really mirror what the Torah is trying to drill kind of into our hearts, what message the Torah is trying to give us. And that is not only to know that God exists, but to actually live your life in a way that you are guided, that you are governed by this as a reality and how you see the world. Your Weltanschauung, your worldview now is via this principle, via the principle that God really exists and oversees what happens in the world. You know, the question of envy. People, I think, assume that it's an interpersonal matter. 
for you being envious of your friend, it's a, kind of a violation that you have against your friend. If so, why is there a difference between being envious of his physical and his spiritual accomplishments? If it's an interpersonal matter, it's going to make a difference. We believe that envy is a violation of faith. Because when someone's envious, they are ignoring the fact that it is God who apportions these things. And in fact, there's many sources to this effect. So for example, the Talmud in the book of Nida, page 16b, tells us a very dramatic idea. There's an angel that oversees conception. And that angel's called Lila. Lila, incidentally, is the Hebrew word for night. And this angel takes the drop of primordial biological fluid and presents this drop before God and asks God the following question. This drop, will he be strong physically? Will he be weak physically? Will he be sharp intellectually? Will he be dull intellectually? Will he be rich financially? Or will he be poor financially? The only question that is not resolved before someone is even conceived is will you be righteous or will you be wicked? A second source to this effect is in, is found in the Talmud in the book of Sota, page 2a. The rabbi taught 40 days before the formation of the child, a prophetic voice announces the daughter of so-and-so will marry this person. The house, this specific house, will be acquired by this person, and this field will be acquired by this person. Meaning that kind of the essence of what people desire, what people covet that belongs to their, fe- to their fellow, their livelihood, their field, their residence, their home, their spouse, their wife, those things are decided by God. So what is it, what exactly it means that a prophetic voice comes and announces this? It's a separate question. What does that mean? What's the nature of that voice? What does it mean that there's an angel called Lila that takes the drop and asks God what's going to be with this person? Obviously, that's a Kabbalistic idea. But for us, what it means that when someone is strong or someone is intelligent or someone is wealthy or someone has a certain wife or someone has a certain house or a certain field, those things... They're largely the product of God determining that that's what they get. Of course, people still have free will. And people can decide they don't want to get married. And people can just, people have latitude in making these decisions. But ultimately, what the, the message that we're being told here in the Talmud is that these things are apportioned by God. And therefore, when I'm envious of what that person has, in effect, it's not a violation against that person. It's a violation against God. However, what's the one thing that is not determined before a child's born, will they be righteous? Will they be wicked? Those matters, the spiritual matters, that's really their accomplishment. And therefore, when I'm being envious, I'm making two mistakes. I'm making mistake number one, the person themselves earned it. I'm making mistake number two by 
ignoring, obviating God's role. However, with respect to the spiritual accomplishments of my fellow, then it's truly appropriate for me to be envious because you know what? They themselves earned those spiritual accomplishments. And therefore, yes, they are the true owners of those accomplishments. It's worthy for them to be the object of my envy. And you know what? It could have a very powerful and positive result because if I'm envious of them, maybe indeed I will pursue those same items myself. Now, there is a blessing that we say every morning, which I think is germane to this subject. When we have the morning blessings, we say, She'asa li kol tzorki. We're thanking God that God made for me everything that I need. It's a very powerful idea. We're declaring that we believe that the Almighty positioned us for a certain role and gave us exactly all the tools that we need to accomplish our mission, to accomplish, to fulfill that role, that specific role that we were placed on this earth to accomplish. Does God want me to be Abraham? He already had an Abraham. He already had a Moses. He already had the great Rabbi Akiva and the Rambam and the Chavetz Chaim, the great rabbis, the great antecedents, our great ancestors of yesteryear. Those roles were fulfilled. Those boxes have been checked. My personal role, my personal mission, responsibility that the Almighty placed me on this earth to accomplish, that I was given everything I need to accomplish that. And therefore, when I'm envious of someone else, in effect, I'm trying to corrupt the whole system. I am invalidating, so to speak, the idea that the Almighty placed me here to accomplish a certain responsibility and gave me all the tools and everything that I need to accomplish that. If I say, no, I need some other tools, I'm in effect saying, no, 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 the Almighty, you have not figured this out. You you messed it up. You corrupted it. You didn't realize that I need this when, in fact, I do need that. There's an interesting tactic of how to kind of view this whole idea, this whole concept. And if you look at the verse in Scripture, it says, don't covet the house of your fellow. Don't covet the wife of your fellow and his servant and his maidservant and his ox and his donkey. It seems like it's a pretty comprehensive list. And then it concludes, v'chol asher l'rechan, all that belongs to your fellow. So, it seems kind of odd. It starts by listing everything, his house and his wife and his male servant and female servant and ox and donkey. Six things it lists. It seems like, okay, it's listing them all. And then it concludes, everything that your fellow has. And if the addendum, everything, i.e. includes everything, what's this whole idea of listing everything? Why does the verse initially list the six items one by one, then say, oh, and everything belongs to your fellow. So one of the Hasidic masters said like this, the way for you to overcome the instinct of envy is to realize that it's illogical to desire just one sliver, just one slice of someone else's life. If you want to desire what your fellow has, you have to take it all. And everything that belongs to your fellow. 
Meaning that if, if the Almighty made like a package that included everything of someone's life, you know, their, their difficulties and their assets and liabilities in every arena and made a box of it and made a basket and you had to select your own, invariably each one of us would choose our own package. Yes, every one of us are going through some difficult times and yes, each one of us could find in other people, things that we'd like to improve. But the whole package, the totality of it all, we're happy. We want to keep what we have besides for that one thing that we want to take from this neighbor and that from the other neighbor to kind of improve our situation. But really, once we realize that that's not feasible, it's not logical to desire just one thing that your fellow has because your fellow has maybe one thing that's great and one thing that's kind of terrible – that is a useful way to avoid this transgression. Now, it is interesting that even though our sages tell us that there's seven Noahide laws, seven laws that are universal laws to apply to everyone, this particular prohibition, prohibition number 38 and 416, not to desire not to covet what your fellow has, actually applies to non-Jews. Why? Because it is a subcategory of thou shalt not murder, and thou shalt not commit adultery. Why? Because if, some, if you desire your neighbor's wife, you may take steps to try to pursue her. Or if you desire what your fellow has, you may try to take it violently. And that would therefore encroach on the other prohibitions. And these seven Noahide laws are actually inclusive of everything that is related to it, everything that's concomitant to it. And therefore, this will be prohibited for them as well. But ultimately, the bottom line of this idea is that envy really is rooted in lack of faith. Because if someone truly had faith, if someone truly believed that the Almighty is the one who decides who gets what, if that was real, you wouldn't indeed even desire what your fellow has.